Welcome to another episode of the Herefordshire Light Infantry's podcast, Just a Walk in the Sun. It's brilliant to be here with you today. I'm the Reverend Paul Roberts and uh, Colonel Andy Taylor introduced this podcast episode. It's been a little while, Andy, since we've um, managed to get a podcast together. Yes, it has. I mean, we've been on holiday and had a jolly good time, although the weather was appalling. And I trust that all of our listeners have enjoyed the very unseasonable holiday weather or August weather. And now we're in September and we're in a heat wave. Indeed, indeed. We um, Just about when you came off holiday, we went on holiday and pretty much the same thing happened then. And then the, the kids went back to school and suddenly... We have degrees. time in our hands again. <laughs> Indeed. But with it, with this hot weather and sunshine and the in- incredible duration of this hot weather that we've had in this last week, it takes our minds back to what the Herefordshire Regiment and those soldiers must have felt like landing over the beaches of Souvle Bay in um, August 1915, 80, no, and eight years ago mm. uh, normally we would go on uh, go on for a walk couldn't we and but the budget doesn't quite stretch to the flights to turkey and unfortunately not although i did i did visit i, I visited the the battlefields there twice um, once oh must be almost 20 years ago now and once about three or four years mm. ago just before covid and uh Sufla bay is incredible the Hellis Peninsula and Anzac are serviced by tarmac roads and they are very popular with visitors. All of the tourists visit there, especially the Anzacs, mm. who, you know, the young Australians and New Zealanders who really see Gallipoli as the birth of their nation. Mm. Mm. But of course, Suvla Bay is in still very uh, isolated there are no tarmac roads there you have to travel down farm tracks when i went the weather was good but i'm told that if the weather's poor then there are mud tracks and you can't actually mm. reach Suvla bay so it, it is still very much as it was and there are lots of battlefield relics around uh when we were there we spent three days on the uh, the battlefield there and walked the complete ground uh, walked everywhere the Herefords had been. And during that time, we saw two goat herders and two fishermen. <laughs> and that so was it, it gives you some idea. <laughs> uh, and, and we had to take all their water with us. There's no shops. There's nothing there. It, 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 and it's so quiet. And you can sit there. You can look at the blue sea, the sun-bleached land, sandy, the, 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 the dry grass, and you can sit down, close your eyes, and, and you, you can almost imagine mm. what it was like. The only thing missing, of course, is the sound of battle. Now, the, uh, the Suvla Bay landing was uh, incredibly important for the Herefordshire Regiment. Um, it's remembered in the town still with uh, the reserve centre, Suvla Barracks, taking its name from those landings. And of course, uh, Suvla Barracks is the location for our museum. But for those, Andy, who don't really know very much about um, Suvla and Gallipoli, and when they think about the First World War, they might simply think about the Western Front. What was, what was Gallipoli all about? Well, it, it, it's quite complicated where to begin or where to finish um it's quite interesting because many of the issues which are current today with ukraine 
were pertinent then, back in 1915. Ukraine today is having massive problems uh, exporting its grain. Well, it was the breadbasket of Russia. Mm. Ukraine was part of Russia in 1915. And they wanted to be able to export their grain and gain foreign currency. Mm. The Allies were very keen for this to happen, or the rest of the Allies mm. were very keen to support Russia in this so that they could export their grain. They had foreign currency so they could buy munitions to support them in the Eastern Front. Turkey, of course, was part of the Central Powers. So therefore, their Russia's access to the world trade through the Dardanelles was mm. limited mm. Because, because of that. So this was considered a campaign to ideally take Turkey out of the war, to allow Russia freedom to trade, thus strengthening the Eastern Front, ensuring that the Central Powers couldn't transfer troops from the Eastern mm. Front to the Western mm. Front. Because despite all that happened in the Middle East, it was considered that the war would be won on the Western mm, Front. Mm. So the idea was to keep the Central Powers as weak as possible on the Western Front so that the, the war could be won there. Mm. There tended to be people who favoured an all-out Western Front solution. And there was others who were looking for other theatres in which a significant difference could be made. And, and Winston Churchill, of course, fell into that latter camp. Yes, he, he was, as, as um, First Lord of the Admiralty. And he very much supported the Gallipoli campaign. But there were other campaigns which mm. were considered as well. There was the Salonika campaign, mm. which happened. There was an amphibious assault through Denmark into North Germany being considered. So there were lots of things mm. being considered, but Gallipoli was the one which they put their their, their money behind. We've only got the sort of 40-minute window to, <laughs> to talk about this today, so we're perhaps not going to go stage by stage, blow by blow, are we? But certainly the that campaign opened in, in April of 1915. Yeah, it, it did, with troops being um, landing in the south of the Gallipoli mm, Peninsula mm. at Cape Helles and then the Anzac Corps at, uh, at what became known as Anzac. Mm, mm. It was always considered a little bit of a sideshow. We mentioned earlier on about those people that saw the war being won on the Western Front. And as a result of that, some of the troops and some of the resources which were sent to support the Gallipoli campaign were not really fit mm. in, in the, in the loosest sense of the word to undertake that campaign. The Anzacs were in Egypt. They were there for acclimatisation, mm. not, not um, climatic acclimatisation, but for training and to be brought up to battle speed before going to the Western Front. They just happened to be available troops in Egypt and therefore were sent to Gallipoli. Mm, mm. There was an awful lot of that. The 29th Division was an ad hoc division made up of all individual battalions which were withdrawn from garrison duties all around the mm, world, mm. thrown together as a unit and sent to mm, fight. Mm. They had very little support, very little artillery and support elements like that. The planning phase was difficult, but I think probably I'm, I'm, I'm going down <laughs> rabbit holes again and, and all so, the problems. There were certainly challenges. That's right. So, but, but there was that feeling that the, the impetus needed to be renewed. Uh, and so, uh, so those additional landings were planned for, for, for August. And the, uh, the, the Herefordshire Regiment, as part of the 
53rd Welsh Division were were selected. Yep, that's to, that's to take absolutely part right. That. I, I mean, the, the the campaign, or or, or the the Civil Bay campaign was designed effectively in two phases. Um, Suvla Bay is horseshoe shaped, with the centre of the horseshoe being the Salt Lake, the two points and the shape of the horseshoe being high ground. Mm. And the Turks basically held the high ground. There are very few Turkish troops there to start with. The two points of the horseshoe were the first phase and the 10th and 11th divisions, which were both new army divisions, Mm. Kitchener's Mm. army. Mm. So these were individuals that 12 months earlier had been civilians. Mm. So they were very inexperienced, uh, no battle experience at all. But they landed on the two points And they actually were quite successful and they achieved their landing objectives, which were to secure the two points, dig in and with limited exploitation Mm -hmm. forward. Then within hours, almost, two more divisions, the 53rd and the 54th Division landed and they were to move on to exploit the high ground and take the high ground and drive the Turks off. And it was in that second phase with the 53rd Welsh Division, as you said, that the Herifords were. Mm-hmm. And those those two were territorial divisions. So uh, so again, they'd, they'd perhaps a little bit more experience of being, the battalions-wise, being, being formed and knowing who their commanders were and, uh, and, uh, and this, that and the other. But many of them, of course, will have joined at the beginning of the war as territorials. Absolutely. M- many of the individuals were... Um, were, were civilians 12 mm, months mm, before. They were those eager volunteers mm. from August and September 1914. Uh, lots of them young men. Amongst the Herefords, I think probably 80% of the battalion were under the age of 25, lots of them under the age mm. of 20. The advantages with the territorial battalions was that they had an established command structure. Yeah. Uh, the new army battalions, they had very few individuals who had been officers or senior NCOs prior to the war. They may have been works managers and they may have been works foremen, but that takes a different uh, management in a commercial organisation. It's very different to leadership Mm, mm. in war. So the territorials did have a slight advantage Mm, on that. mm. The 6th, 7th of August... The landings took place at Suvla Bay. Mm. And we thought we would uh, focus perhaps just on that, that first 24-hour that first period, that, that, you know, that mm. initial experience of what it must have been like for, these, for these many, many of them young soldiers landing and coming under fire for the first time because they came under fire pretty much straight away. Uh, they, they? they did. I mean, as the troops landed... There, there was great confusion, and they, they, many of them didn't land where they were supposed to. And because the battle was not going as planned, as soon as they landed, they were sent forward. So troops were taken out, sometimes out of companies were taken from their battalions, mm. battalions from their brigades, brigades were in the wrong place. There was no organisation, and this was part of the big problem there, that they then couldn't draw together a sufficient mm. number of troops to mount an assault. Mm. So the Herefords actually landed late in the day because the ship that they were on ran aground, was on a sandbar, and they had to be transferred to another ship before they could land. And as a result of that, they were about 12 hours, perhaps 16 hours Mm. behind when they were supposed to land. Uh, When they landed, they hadn't got a roll 
the commanding officer had no maps. They landed on a different beach to what they were supposed to land. And when they landed, they looked at their compasses and they couldn't align where they were. Mm. They were supposed to be landing on a north-south beach. They actually landed on an east-west beach. So when they tried to reconcile where they were, it was just chaotic. Mm. Mm. There was some sporadic fire when when they were landing and... Depending which accounts you read, there is a count of a um, of the regimental butcher Smales by name, who and there's still a Smales shop mm. in the um, in the butter market in Hereford, who was the first casualty, and he was a casualty from from shrapnel. Oh right, um, mm. but I've not found any. I, I assume that he was only wounded. He mm. certainly not wasn't a, a fatal casualty, but he was one of the first to be hit or to be reported mm. as being hit. Anyway, when they landed, they, they didn't have a role, so they actually sat around under the shade or under the, sh- the, the, the cover, I suppose, of, of a large sand dune. Under the shadow, they sat there and they had some biscuits and lime juice. They had their lunch, lovely lunch, hardtack <laughs> biscuits yeah. and lime juice. But under the shade of this sand dune, which is called Lalababa, uh, they sat there and they wandered around. And one veteran that I spoke to, Private Slaymaker, he walked up to the top of the sand dune. He noticed around him spits coming up out of the sand. And he thought it was some sort of animal. He didn't really mm. know what it was. And he was shouted at by other people who told him, in, well, I suspect in some fairly fruity language, to get off the hill because it was attracting sniper fire. fire. And these were sniper bullets hitting oh, the sand. Hmm. And I remember what one of the um, individuals saying to me that that happened and suddenly we realised it was for real. Yeah. We were under fire. It came as a bit of shock. I think to start with, it was, you know, they'd had a nice, a nice, they'd had a cruise out mm. from Britain in quite good weather. They'd seen Gibraltar, Malta, Alexandria, places they'd never seen no, before. No. And suddenly, as they were approaching the shore... The Royal Navy ships were firing, knocking lumps off the mountains, as one um, veteran I spoke to said. But that was still in the distance. Mm. They were now ashore. They'd had casualties, smales. They were now there under under the the, the, the the enemy fire. And it might seem a sort of naive thing to say, but but perhaps for some of those for the, some of those chaps, they, they their only experience really of the beach may have been a day to Western or to or, or to Barry Island yeah, or something yeah. something like that, which, yeah. which which you sort of associate with a you know with a, with a day off and nice yeah, weather and an ice cream, sand bucket, you know, and, and, <laughs> a, a bucket and sand castles and, and a donkey. That's right, <laughs> yeah. and, and and suddenly then to yeah to, to take fire must have been yeah. you know quite you know really quite a shock, pretty horrific, and and it it, it was hot weather as mm. we know, brilliant sunshine, really warm. They've probably not had any sleep for thirty six hours mm. by this stage from the time they went on the ship or the, the landing craft, to eventually when they got off them. Uh, they don't really know what's going on. There's no structure. They're, they're pretty confused. I think that there were some excellent senior NCOs, the Sergeant Majors, who really did cut about them and get them sorted out. Sergeant Major Chip, Sergeant Major Faulkner, and, and Sergeant Major Morris. You know, they, they were good guys. Mm, mm. And they had all been pre-war territorials, pre-war Sergeant Majors. They were known by the troops. They knew what was going mm. on, and I think they did an awful lot of, of, of good work mm. 
in, in keeping the guys together. But of course, they were acting within their own companies, within the battalion, mm. and there was a bigger uh, operation going on there. Mm. So, and, and we've got in in the museum, we've got some accounts, haven't we, of of people who were who were there? Yeah, we have. I, I mean, I, I will read from one of them, which which is from Private Pike. No, not that Pike. <laughs> <laughs> he he was. Landing, and interesting enough, he wasn't in the first phase of landing from the Herryfords. He was retained on board the ship, the Snaefell, as a fatigue party oh. to load the battalion stores mm. onto um, a, a ship to come ashore. And he says, the battleships were still firing frequent broadsides, and it seemed as if the hills must be blown to pieces. The way we were landed was very interesting. The boat was steered at a fair speed straight onto the sandy slope of the beach. And as soon as the bear was well in the sand, a kind of drawbridge was let down so that we could walk ashore. Mm. And this is the beginning of the landing craft, yes, which everyone yeah. can, knows from mm, D-Day mm. and the Second World War. We then spent another hour carrying the stores ashore. And luckily for us, the Turks let us do this without interfering. It's interesting how casually they they talk about all of this and, mm. and it may, almost made light of it when we heard the next shell coming we lay flat on the ground in fact many of us wished we could drop through the ground the shell exploded amongst the stores we had just landed the shells came thick and fast until we were beginning to feel the first signs of that kind of stoicism that sooner or later comes to most people under fire Interesting how quickly mm, they mm. assimilated and got to it. They then picked up two days of iron rations. We made a tea of bully beef and biscuits with lemonade. Oh, he had lemonade to drink. Normally oh. it was lime juice. And, and then the, the, by this time, the commanding officer, Colonel Drake, had reported into the headquarters and he'd been given orders to go forward to relieve troops or to support troops of the Sherwood Foresters. So they'd got the regiment together and then moved forward. And uh, Pike goes on to say, the colonel, who had been very cool all the day during the firing, led us over York Hill. A wonderful, though discouraging view lay before us from the brow of the hill. On our left lay the Salt Lake, at the end of which we saw a hill which we were told was Chocolate Hill, on which so many lives had already been lost and more were to be lost yet. On our right was the sea, and in front of us was a stretch of about three miles of level, though rough country. And it was this rough ground which they, they crossed over. Mm. Very rough thorn bush, broken ground, dusty, covered by uh, um, Turkish artillery fire. Lots of it went on fire, and they lost quite a lot of individuals during this advance, including Sergeant Major Faulkner, who was killed... And his son, who was a sergeant, so Sergeant Faulkner's, Sergeant Major Faulkner's son, was in the same company, uh, was told that his father had been injured uh, or had fallen. Sergeant Faulkner went to try and find his father's body later on, but couldn't find it, and was told that he'd been evacuated down to the beach, that he died and was buried. But um, he has, Sergeant Major Faulkner has no known grave. Right. Hmm. And interestingly, Sergeant Faulkner wrote to his mother saying that his father, her husband, had been killed and the letter was published in the Hereford Times and that letter 
was received by Mrs. Faulkner prior to her receiving official notification right. that, that her husband had been mm, killed. Mm. So all in all, a, a pretty trying experience. Absolutely. Uh, it, tragic. And of course, what, one, of the, one of the challenges with a locally recruited unit, such as a territorial unit, where you, you know, not only have brothers serving together, but here, you know, um, father and son, uh, you know, so it's, yeah. You're very much like, like the Pels battalions. Mm, yeah, Everyone yeah. talks about the Pels battalions, but the territorial battalions were the same. Mm. Herefordshire, in some ways, was quite unusual. They only had one territorial yeah. battalion. Whereas other, some cities had their own battalions, That's so right. they they were effectively Pulse mm, battalions mm, in their own yeah, rights. Yeah, but but of course the way the territorials were and had been going for quite a long time, and the volunteers before that, you were more likely to get that multi generational relationships, yep. weren't you? Rather than a Pulse battalion where you'd likely to get a cohort of all the same. Yeah. Roughly the same yeah, age, very people. much so. Yeah, um, because I imagine uh, Sergeant Major Faulkner. Would, I mean, he he probably would have been a volunteer prior to 1908. I I would imagine. Yeah, he was. He he served with the Hereford Rifle Volunteer mm. Corps, as has his son. He had another son as well, who was a sergeant in the Second Battalion. So, and they, they were all musicians. Mm. Sergeant Faulkner went on to be the, um, I think, the band sergeant major, and continued to serve with the Herefordshire Regiment after the, um, the First World War and actually died at a range day at Ross Ranges mm. when he was doing the machine gun pairs running forward and presumably had a massive heart attack. Right. In, this was in the, in the mid-30s. Yeah. So um, mm. a family with quite a tradition sure. of service. And they, they, were they from Hereford itself? Or yeah, they, they were, yeah, Hereford yeah. City, mm. yeah, mm. yeah. Going back to the to the battalion moving forward, mm. of course, there's they're shortage of water. They're hot. They they don't really know where they're supposed to be going. They're being fired at. There's shrapnel going overhead. Smoke and dust and noise. It's total confusion. Mm. And the battalion gets broken up. They've moved forward in what they call artillery uh, formation, which is if you look at a number five on a dice, dot, dot, mm. two dots at the back and the dot in the middle, the dot in the middle is the headquarters and then the four pieces around it on a battalion are the companies and then you'd have the same thing in the company with the four dots around it being the platoons. So that's how they move right. forward. And they'd all be anything up to, I don't know, 50, perhaps 100, 150 metres spread mm. so that if an artillery shell landed, it wouldn't take out everyone. Yeah. But of course, because of that and the broken ground, they got separated. Mm. One company, in fact, it's, it, it was Private Pike's company, drifted off to the left or to the north and was separated from the battalion for about three days. Right. Private Pike talks about linking up with the um, Southwest Borderers and actually going into their firing line mm. and being attached to them for two days mm. and, and, and fighting with them. When they, when they were advancing, would it have been obvious where the enemy were? No, not at all. Well, yes and no. It was obvious that the, that the enemy were at the high mm. ground mm. in the distance, but individual locations of the enemy couldn't mm. really mm. be seen. And at this stage, it was mainly small arms fire and machine gun fire, so there were no artillery fire giving well there was artillery fire but it was further back yeah yeah uh, so, so there were no obvious signs where the enemy were they were just 
over there somewhere. Mm. And, and, and I mean, it's a similar uh, similar experience, of course, in the Boer War, where uh, those sort of guerrilla tactics of, of occupying high ground, yep. moving around as well to make yep. it to, um, to, uh, to to make it appear as if there were more people yep. uh, opposing you than, than there actually were. Yeah, and to start with, there was only a a weak battalion of Turkish soldiers mm. defending the whole area. And this is the great tragedy of Suvla Bay, is that when the first troops landed, the, the new army troops and then the territorial troops, they didn't have artillery with them in sufficient numbers. Mm. And the lessons learned on the Western Front were that you couldn't advance unless you had artillery cover, so they held back. The commanders were also concerned, putting their troops into battle for the first time, that they were just tired out and, mm. and they needed time to recover. And as a result of that, they didn't push through. And the, the Turks, under Lehman von Sanders and uh, Mustafa Kemal, rushed reinforcements mm. down. By the time the British had got themselves reorganised and Stopford, who was the general, had actually woken up in many ways and, and decided to crack the whip, it was too late. Right. And the, the Turks arrived and the Turks reinforced the position probably only a couple of hours before the British got their act together right. and advanced. Mm. If they'd advanced earlier, they might have been successful. They got, got to that high ground, which then would have been much easier to defend Absolutely. As, as, as the Turkish troops yeah. you know, found themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, if they'd got to that high ground, it would have made the Turkish position overlooking Anzac pretty much untenable. Mm, mm. So the Anzacs could have come forward. If the Anzacs could have come forward, then they would have got the high ground, which was dominating the narrows, the view of the narrows, in some ways restricting the advance up from Suvlis. Mm. That's from Hellas. So, so the logic was there. It's just that they didn't quite it get it. A, it was a gamble that didn't quite pay off for a number of for, for yeah. a number of reasons. Uh, and part of it is command at various levels. Not all the fault of the commanders. The top commanders, Stopford and crew. In fact, several of the generals were sacked after him mm. for, for not for not um, driving on. They should have had more of a grip and pushed it on. The commanders on the ground, they were. It was just so confusing to them. They had so little experience that they were just doing the best they could. Mm. So I, I don't blame the commanders at the lower levels, but the uh, the, the, the formation commanders left a mm. bit to be desired mm. in all of this. Mm. And of course, with all of this, I mean, I always question, why, was, why wasn't why was Suvla Bay selected as the initial landing spot? Mm. It looks to be an ideal landing spot. There, there's, you know, beaches that you could land on, hinterland that you could occupy which was unoccupied. There were no villages or anything no, there. No, no. I suppose in Cape Helles, where there were cliffs to be landed against, Krithia, the, the village was mm. there, there mm. were forts there. I, I, I mean, it's it just, it's Gallipoli, of course. Right? Absolutely. And of course, slightly outside the scope of this uh, of this oh, episode, yeah. but uh, that initial landing in, in April, the you mentioned the 29th Division, the, the 4th Worcestershire Regiment were, were part of that mm. and fought in Krithia Vineyard and suffered huge casualties yeah. both in the landing and then because of course they were they then were fighting on the 6th of august as well yeah um uh, through that through that vineyard and trying to yeah. push on they, they, yeah. you're right yeah. the those locations for the fighting seem to have been um poorly mm. poorly chosen but i think there was there was perhaps 
I don't know. It, there feels to be a slight sort of gambling mentality. Well, we'll give it a try, hope for the best. And again, a, a perfect example of that is the Battle of Crithia. There were three battles of Crithia. The first one failed. So let's do exactly the same again. Oh, it's failed again. Well, let's do exactly the same again. And that's why there were three battles of Crithia, all doing exactly the same. Each time there were fewer troops, but they were going over the same ground, mm. same start point, same time, mm. everything the same. Well, surely, you know, the commander should have realised that if it didn't work once, it's not going to work a second no, or third no. time. And um, I think that's the the futility of much of what is seen about the First World War. But I, but I think Gallipoli particularly was um, an example of that because, unfortunately, there were some second-rate commanders mm. who were put in command who really didn't have the experience or even, dare I say, the intelligence to, mm. to, to mm. sort of make it work, mm. to make the best mm. of it. But anyway, going back to airmen... They now have fought forward. They, they, they're really now, they are desperately thirsty. Uh, they've had their one bottle, water bottle, one pint of water. They, that's gone. There are no, there's no replenishment anywhere. So, so they're, they're really quite dry. There are some local wells around. Taking shelter in a dried up river course, they, they see a well and they ask people to go forward to collect water. And Private Pike is one of those individuals that goes forward. Uh, they come under sniper fire. When they get close to the well, they find that there are soldiers from other battalions there who have tried to approach it to get water and have been hit by snipers. Mm. But Pike is successful, gets in and um, gets the water. One of the other who is with him is a chap called Private Man. Uh, the, t the two of them are successful and they collect water bottles from all of their companies so they've probably got about 20 water bottles with them and they go forward and, and fill these up and manage to get some water back but that was it and then of course the Herifords have been in or, or not all the Herifords the, the ones that were still there together have taken shelter in a dried up river course the Asmac Dare and a staff officer comes along and tells them that they're in the wrong place and they're to go back to the beach by this time, the commanding officer, the adjutant, and the two IC have all been wounded and have gone back to the beach for first aid. So one of the company commanders is running the battalion. So what does he do? He's told to go back to the beach. So he takes the battalion back to the beach. So all the ground they've just advanced over, they now recover over. He reports back into the battalion headquarters, so the brigade headquarters when he gets to the beach is asked by the brigade staff why he's on the beach. He shouldn't be there. He should be forward at the Asmac Dare and to go back forward the next morning. So their first 24 hours or first 36 hours ashore have been a total waste of effort and time. They've achieved absolutely nothing and they've probably lost 50% of their strength. Mm. Not a lot of fatalities, fortunately, but there have been, I mean, Sergeant Major Faulkner was one, and um, Captain Archer Croft was another, who was the, the, the 2IC of C Company, who just disappeared. But they've lost men. But they're, they're just totally worn out. They're mm. totally fatigued. They were tired before they landed. And this really has just taken everything out of them. 
And of course, every other battalion is exactly the same. Yeah. So the whole force now is totally disorganized. It's probably down to about 50% of the strength, the, of its landing strength. It's still disorganized with, with bits of platoons, companies, battalions misplaced. What chance have they got? So within 72 hours of the operation, within 24 hours of the Hereford's landing, Suvla, in my opinion, was lost. Mm. Which, you know, they went on for another three months, four months. But uh, it's just opportunities which were lost. It's the if only, the what if Mm. war Mm. or campaign. And and it's, it's so... Um, I don't know what the word is, but you look at it and think, if only that had happened, if they'd have done that. And, and there are so many little things which could have made such a difference. Mm, mm. And I believe that Suvla could have been successful. Mm. Uh, but as I say, within the, la- within the first 24 hours, that the die had been cast. Hmm. Yes, the idea definitely had merit, but the execution and the control let it down, didn't it? And I think that's the challenge with the Gallipoli campaign as a whole. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think there are two levels. There's the whole Gallipoli campaign, and then there's, and there's the Suvla Bay. Hmm. And, and even with Hellis and Anzac failing, and the whole Gallipoli campaign being questionable, I still think that Suvla on its own hmm. could have been successful. Hmm. Whether that would have changed... The course of the the whole Gallipoli campaign mm. is a different issue mm. completely, mm. but um, yeah. So um, anyway, Paul, on this hot day, I think it's, <laughs> I think I think like like many of those um, Herefordshire soldiers from August nineteen fifteen, I expect they would have been looking forward to a nice cool glass of cider or beer. Indeed, so I think that indeed, it's getting towards that time. Even it? if they just had to put up with some lime juice or lemonade, yeah. um, you know, I'm they sure would have we welcomed can, that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure they could. I'm sure we can probably, uh, we can probably recover back over the, over the ground maybe. And, um, and, and, and slake the thirst. Yeah. I think um, that's a good idea. So it's be, been brilliant to, to be able to get back on the airwaves or whatever they are on a, on a podcast, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure. Do um, uh, do check out um, the podcast description for uh, links to other episodes and other information about the podcasts and indeed ways of supporting the Herefordshire Light Infantry Museum um, through Patreon and through our friends scheme. But in the meantime, it's, it's goodbye from me. And in that well-known phrase, it's goodbye from him. Carry on, Bansar Major.